Turn with me now or listen on as I read Acts chapter 8, verse 26 to the end of the chapter. Acts chapter, 20, uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 26 to the end of the chapter. We conclude the account of, of Philip's ministry. Here's what we read. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert uh, so he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot. He was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come and, uh, and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he, was, which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before the shearer is silent. So he opened not his mouth in his humiliation. His justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you of whom does the prophet say this of himself or of some other man. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the river and he baptized him. Now, when they came out about of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more. But he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus and passing through. He preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. And let us pray together. Holy Father, we thank you for your word once more. And we ask you that you might bring it now to us through the preaching with power and with spiritual uh, with spiritual energy, which builds us up in our faith in the inward man. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you know, Philip was one of the seven that was uh, commissioned as deacons. The first deacons in Acts chapter 6. You have uh, he's, he's the next man who's mentioned, Stephen, then Philip. And it's, uh, there's five others, but it's interesting to notice how Stephen becomes the first martyr, and then Philip becomes this mighty preacher, these first deacons. What do we make of that? Well, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. It's, if nothing else, it's, it's just fascinating to notice what the Lord was doing in those days. Uh, but unquestionably, Philip uh, had a very important role to play in the early church, especially as the church was expanding outside of Jerusalem. Stephen was killed, the church was per- being persecuted, and they were scattered abroad, And the man whose ministry Luke highlights in Acts chapter 8, the church having been spread abroad or scattered abroad, is that of Philip. Well, we see his interaction with this man, an Ethiopian. And the way that it makes sense to me to consider this passage is to see it as the tale of two men. 
Now, I might have preached all of chapter eight and preached that as the tale of two men. That is the tale of Simon and the tale of the Ethiopian, because it seems clear that there's an obvious contrast between these two men. One man seems to be converted and is not. And another man is very obviously and soundly converted. So in one sense, you could say that uh, that Luke here is contrasting in his telling of Philip's narrative, the Ethiopian to Simon. But as we find ourselves here in these verses, verses 26 through 40, the end of, to the, uh, the second half of the chapter, rather, let us look rather at these two men who were so similar in many ways, that is Ethiopian and Philip in their, in their, in their interaction. Beginning with the Ethiopian, Luke is highlighting three things about him. The first of which is his identity. He was an Ethiopian eunuch. We read of him that uh, he, he was a man of great authority under Candace the, Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship and was now returning from Jerusalem back to Egypt. And Philip met him along the way. What we ought to notice and what Luke seems to be highlighting is that he was different from the Samaritans in seemingly every way. The Ethiopian, I'm reading from F.F. F. Bruce. Well, let me begin a little sooner. Along the desert road to Gaza, Philip came on a traveling chariot or covered wagon, making its way southward. In it was seated the treasurer of the kingdom of Ethiopia, who had made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and was now returning home. The Ethiopian treasurer was probably a Gentile worshiper of the God of Israel. He is referred to by a term which may have a more general sense of Chamberlain or a stricter sense of eunuch. He was employed as a court official. Like the Greek, the Greeks mentioned in John 12, 20, this man had visited Jerusalem as a worshiper, probably at the time of one of the great pilgrim festivals, and was now beginning his homeward journey by studying a scroll of the book of Isaiah in the Greek version. How different this man was from the Samaritans, that could be another possible contrast. It's obvious that it is not just Simon and the Ethiopian, but now the Samaritans and the Ethiopian. The Samaritans were, uh, they were common people, you might say. And yet this Ethiopian was, uh, he was a prominent official, a man of power. Another thing is uh, the Samaritans uh, were disassociated from Judaism, but this man was very interested in Judaism. The differences are striking. And so that's his identity. Uh, The relevance of that will come out later. The thing that Luke highlights about him more so than his humility is his, excuse me, his identity is his humility or his spirit. It's what was true of him, again, especially in contrast to Simon, who we read of earlier in chapter 8. For one thing, he was a man interested in learning. He was passing the time on his journey by reading the scriptures. So there he was in his chariot as Philip found him reading the scriptures. That's how he was biding his time. I wonder, can we say as much? I, if, if I were passing by, would I find you reading the scriptures as the Ethiopian was? But notice how he read the scriptures. As he did so, he did... Uh, He read them in a spirit of humility. That is, he didn't pretend to know everything. He didn't sit above scripture. He sat under scripture. He was not interested in 
making the scriptures conform to his own way of thinking. He was trying to get his way of thinking in line with the scriptures. You see, that was his humility. And so he frankly admits when Philip uh, and, and it, I once heard a preacher describe this almost comically, Philip running beside the chariot saying, you know, do you understand what you're eating, sir? He says, come on in and tell me because I don't. How can I understand unless I have a teacher? He needed the help and the guidance of someone else. You see, the spirit of the Ethiopian, the eunuch, was one of humility. So Calvin remarks, that is why the reading of scripture bears fruit with such a few people today. Because scarcely one in a hundred is to be found who gladly submits himself to teaching. You, you find, if you've, if you've read any, any amount of Calvin, you'll find that's the kind of thing he likes to say. <laughs> scarcely one in a hundred. And you say, well, Calvin, were you describing our day? No, Calvin was describing his own. And you might as well have said the days of Philip as well. Why does the scripture bear so little fruit? It isn't for lack of reading. It's still in many ways a well-read book widely read book it bears so little fruit because so few submit themselves gladly to teaching that is the teaching of someone else there are so few who are willing to admit along with the ethiopian how can i understand unless someone teaches me to that john stott adds god gives us two gifts first the scriptures then teachers you see not the scriptures alone in many ways That is a great deal, but it isn't everything. We need teaching. We need preaching. But the really important thing was this. Not not so much his identity or his humility, but his conversion. And his conversion consisted of two things. First, his belief in the scriptures. Having understood them, he believed. And what he believed in particular was the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to read verse 37 to you, and anyone who has an ESV will notice it isn't there. And I'm going to say something about that in a moment, but let me read that verse again. Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, uh, you may. He says, may I be baptized? Well, if you believe, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, you find that in the New King James. You'll find it in the King James. You will not find it in the ESV. They simply took the verse out from verse 36 to 38. What is my comment on that? Well, my comment is, admittedly, that this text is disputed. That uh, though I favor very strongly the Textus Receptus, that is the text that, uh, that Erasmus compiled and that the church used for so long, it is admitted, even by its, its adherents, uh, that Erasmus could not find this in the text that he was using, and so he supplied it. Though it can be found in some text. And so it is admittedly a disputed text, even uh, from the defenders of the Textus Receptus, the Greek text upon which the New, uh, the New King James and the King James is based. Well, let me put it like this. Perhaps Erasmus was wrong to include it, but I can understand why he did. Because baptism would have included something like what happened there. In fact, we know, and and this is why those, even those who simply take it out, and and the two main commentaries I'm using, F.F. Bruce and John Stott, both are in that school. They both admit this is something like this certainly happened, because the early baptismal formulas included something like, 
Well, if you want to be baptized, then you must confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so as a part of his baptism, we find his confession, his faith in Jesus Christ. His profession of faith. And how did that faith come? Listen to Matthew Henry. Let us not be satisfied till we get faith as the Ethiopian did by diligent study of the Holy Scriptures. That's the answer. Faith comes like this. It comes through the Bible. It comes as men place themselves under, not above the Holy Scriptures. Henry goes on and the teaching of the spirit of God. Let us not be satisfied till we get it fixed as a principle in our hearts. That is faith. Or listen to Chris Ostom, the early church father, describing the difference between the conversion of the Ethiopian and that of Paul or Saul, as we read him in the next chapter. We find that uh, Saul's eyes are opened by a theophany, by a, a glorious appearance of Jesus Christ. But Chris Ostom notes, so great a thing is the reading of scriptures that it is able to do for us what the appearance of Christ gloriously did for Paul. His faith in the scriptures. That was the first aspect of his conversion. But the second aspect was his baptism. Here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Verse 38. They went down and Philip baptized him. What did baptism signify? It signified for him new birth. It signified his entrance into the church, the people of God. It symbolized his baptism with the Holy Spirit. Now, many have tried to make this text normative. And what I mean is something like, uh, well, along you're going and you're evangelizing someone and that person says, you know, I believe. All right, well, let's, let's, uh, let's fill the bathtub and let's baptize you right now. I've actually heard reports of that happening. Now, remember what I said earlier. That there was, something, uh, there was something different about Philip that separated him from the rest. The rest went about evangelizing, gossiping the word. But Philip was sent. He was authorized. He was ordained. And so as he was commissioned to preach, so he was commissioned as well to baptize. Even still, we would have to say, noting that about Philip, that there is something exceptional about this, not normative as there was uh, with so many things that we read in Acts. This is not the common way of doing things. Ordinarily, someone would be baptized and brought into the church uh, and, and, not, and not in this uh, isolated way. But what is clear is the important role that baptism played in the lives of the early converts. This is something that Peter emphasized Early on in his preaching when they said, what must we do to be saved? And he says, repent and be baptized, all of you. And again and again, we read the, 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 uh, the emphasis upon baptism and, and the, the occurrence of baptism when people were converted. For that matter, not only do we see Luke highlighting it consistently, but it's something that we find in the Gospels. We find it in John the Baptist ministry, we find it in the ministry of Jesus. So much about baptism. Again, as I say, baptism marked out a new beginning. But let us note the true power of the sacraments, having acknowledged their importance, 
the true power of the sacraments, not as salvation itself, but as the seal of salvation. It is the man who has faith. It is the man who is saved, whose faith is sealed by baptism. That is the true value of baptism. Let me let me offer a few quotes from John Calvin. Let's see. He says this. In the first place, baptism brings three things to our faith, which must we must also examine separately. To begin with, God offers it to us as a sign and token of our cleansing. You, you notice the language, a sign and token token of our cleansing, or to put it more clearly, he sends it to us as a message in which he asserts, confirms and assures or seals us that all our sins are so pardoned, covered, wiped away and a face that they will never come to his attention, never be remembered nor imputed by him to us. Well, I could go on, but you get the sense of what he's saying there. I suppose I could read one more line. Those, thus those uh, who have ventured to write that baptism is nothing more than a mark or sign by which we avow our religion before, before men, just as a soldier bears the uniform of his prince, to show that he is his, have failed to perceive the main point of baptism. By the way, he said three things. The first was cleansing. The second was our new life in Christ. And the third was our public, uh, our public attestation of faith. Uh, but this is what he says lastly. He says that the sacraments have been given to us to strengthen, comfort, and confirm our faith. We must therefore know with assurance that he does all these things inwardly within the soul, just as truly and surely as we see our body outwardly washed, immersed, and bathed in water. For this analogy or parallel is an unvarying rule in the sacraments. In physical things, we are to contemplate the spiritual, since the Lord was pleased to represent them for us by such figures. Well, the last thing that I would say about Philip or, or, or the Ethiopian, and I cannot say this with any certainty, but it is the testimony of Irenaeus that the man, the Ethiopian eunuch, after his conversion, became an evangelist himself. Now, that seems very likely from the account, though we can't know that for sure. But come uh, to Philip as a second point. And what do we see about him? Well, we see once more three things. The first of which is his amazing eagerness and willingness and zeal to evangelize. When I'm describing Philip running beside the chariot, what, what do you see there? Do you see a madman? Well, in a sense, you do. You see a man who was, uh, I, I would say, an unstoppable force, a man with unbounded zeal and enthusiasm for the gospel. And I can honestly tell you that I've known few men like that in my life, even in the ministry. When I read this about Philip, I read something that is highly exceptional. And yet, well, for one thing, I would say I'm not surprised, therefore, that Luke makes so much of his ministry. And I can also say, though, I know few like him today, though I do know some. Happily, I can say that. But that the history of the church is full of the testimony of the lives of men like this, again, with this unbounded zeal, this surprising zeal. Look at him here, literally running this man down, if only to evangelize him. 
Notice also, secondly, his flexibility. The gospel was not put in a box or in shackles. It had broken free from Judaism and now it began to fly, so to speak. And it was flying through the ministry of Philip. Amazing. Here was Philip preaching to Samaritans one day, then running down an Ethiopian another day. That's the portrait Luke is painting. And that's what we're meant to see. Did he think either case, in either case, what he said would not appeal to the hearer given their vast differences? Remember the identity of each. Did he accommodate his message to one uh, and then in a different way to another? No, in each case, his message was the same. We read, in essence, he preached Christ to them. Because Philip knew that the gospel is for everyone. And you can literally take it wherever you go. As I say, the gospel was set free. Now it was flying. And that's the burning conviction of every true evangelist like Philip. Wherever he was found, he was preaching the same message. He was sharing the same gospel to, the, to, to, to people of all different kinds. And never did it occur to him uh, to change the message because the audience ch- had changed. However, now I'm speaking of his flexibility. In one sense, what I was saying was that he was inflexible. And yet, do you notice his flexibility in this way? That his methods might change. This is something John Stott makes a great deal of, and I agree with John Stott, that though his message would not change, and he would never dream of changing it, his method would. Again, I must lament the translation of the New King James, verse 35, as I did last time concerning verse 4. Verse 35 says, Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Well, it's the same word that you find in verse four. It's the word for sharing the gospel or evangelizing. And so the sense here is that while Philip was preaching to the crowds in Samaria, here he was sitting next to this man evangelizing. He was engaged in personal evangelism. You have two men sitting next to each other with their Bibles open, one sharing the gospel to the other. And that isn't exactly the same thing as heralding, is it? What I would notice about Philip is that he was capable of both things. As a preacher, he was capable of preaching to great crowds, and so he was also capable of sitting next to an inquirer, let us call him, and sharing the gospel with him. Not exactly the same, and yet we would notice that the results are the same in the end. This man is converted in exactly the same way that the Samaritans were converted, though Uh, Simon excluded as a result of him sharing the good news of Jesus as a result of opening the scriptures uh, to the lost and the last thing that Luke notes about this is that as he passed through the region that's what we find him doing verse 40 as uh, and passing through he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea now I would notice once again it's the same word It's the word evangelism. It's interesting to note that in the ESV there it does translate it preaching. Well, I don't want to press the distinction too far. For certainly in the case of those who preach, their preaching might rightly be called evangelism, especially when they are preaching to the unconverted and the lost. And in that sense, I would agree with 
uh, the ESV when it says, or the New King James, that he was preaching as he went about, only as long as we realized that his preaching had an evangelistic tenor to it. But the last thing that I want to stress about Philip was his message. And his message consisted in two things. First of all, it was an exposition of the scripture. Does anything else, I ask you, deserve to be called preaching? Anything other than an exposition of the Bible? And do you realize that that is what made these men what they were? What made them mighty in the hands of God? It's that they were heralds and they were evangelists of not just the gospel, you see. I, I would say that, of course, but let me be more specific. It was not a generic good news. They were evangelists. They were sharing the good news of the Bible. They were evangelizing with Bibles open, you might say. And so as they were preaching, as they were evangelizing, their sense was not just that they had something to tell people. No, it was something more than that. Their sense was that God was speaking through them. And that's what made them what they were. And do you see the value of the Old Testament in this? The value, I would even say, of the Old Testament in evangelism. Here was a man that was converted as a result of Isaiah 53 being open to him. And I confess I must wonder about modern preachers who will not preach the New Testament when that is what the New Testament preachers did themselves. These men, as I keep saying, were expositors. They were expounders of the scriptures. But the thing that he wanted to, ta- to, to, to share from the Bible was its message of salvation in Jesus. That was his message. Now, in truth, we know very little of what he said. With this scroll open to this particular passage of Isaiah, we simply read, Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached or shared Jesus with him. However, knowing very little of what he said, we can deduce two points very easily about the message of Philip to the Ethiopian, and we could also include the Samaritans. One was, quite clearly, a focus upon the sufferings of Christ in particular as a substitute for sinners. You see, we read in verse 35, he preached Christ to them. But what did he say about Christ? Well, he said this, by his stripes we've been healed. The iniquities of us all have been laid upon him. There he was, bleeding upon the cross. And, uh, and, and salvation is now found in a bleeding Savior. This was, as Paul says, the rock of offense, the great scandal for Jews and Greeks alike. And yet I would say at the same time, good news to guilty sinners. You see, the problem, well, the problem of man is not a lack of knowledge. It is not a lack of progress or however the modern man likes to put it. The great problem of man is sin. And when man realizes he's a sinner, the thing that he wants more than anything else is pardon. He wants an answer to the justice of God. He wants an answer to his sin. And it's a man who's come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and of the scriptures and of his own conscience that realizes, oh God, if any, if there's any way I might be saved, if there's any way you might pardon my sin, how gladly I would be to hear of it. And here was Philip saying to this man. By the stripes of Jesus Christ, you've been healed. 
Christ has suffered for you. And the stroke of justice has fallen on him. Now, in many ways, this is the greatest test. It is the test both of preaching, but also of hearing. And it's the question of what do you make of the cross? What do you make of Isaiah chapter 53? What is it about Christ in particular that interests you? And then let me put it like this. When I tell you that Jesus Christ, the very son of God, died upon that cursed tree for you, is that good news to you? It was for him. But the other thing that Philip was emphasizing to the Ethiopian was the importance of the new birth. Something that I emphasized this morning already. Well, let me emphasize it again. Now, that is obvious less from what he said and more from what his preaching produced. And that has always been a hallmark of true preaching. The emphasis upon the new birth. You must be born again. And I think I can prove that very easily in the case of Philip. But let me just say uh, from history, you, you can see that that is always the case. When the church has fallen into a state of cold formality and lifelessness, when there is a general assumption that all is well and all are saved, it is invariably the result of a lack of this message being preached. It was so in the case of Israel, and so Jesus pressed this point upon Nicodemus and others. So it was true in the case many, many centuries later in in the case of the First Great Awakening. What was it that awakened the church? It was men like Whitfield preaching, Whitfield and Tennant and so many others. The necessity, the absolute necessity of the new birth, birth. Unless you are born again, you cannot be saved. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. Do not think all is well with your soul unless you've Unless you've been born again. You see, this man, this Ethiopian was religious. He had an interest in the scriptures. But he was not a Christian. One thing he lacked, he had yet to experience salvation. He had yet to experience this lasting change. And that's what preaching should not only offer, but it's also what we should be sure that we have ourselves. Let me ask you all, are we content with a mere form of religion or are we sure that we have the reality? There are many in the church today who are like this man before he was converted, before Philip preached to him. But let us all seek to be like him after and be content with nothing else, as Matthew Henry says. True saving faith is more than an interest in the truth. It's more than a desire to read the scriptures. True saving faith is something that changes us. It's something that makes us altogether new. It makes us, as we see him here, want to get on with this new life as soon as we can to express it to others. What prevents me now from being baptized, he says. You see, that's the change I'm talking about here. He experienced a great change. And so, too, he was full of joy now that he was a Christian. And so it was along these lines, Luke is telling us, that the church was being built up by men and women being saved soundly. And it must be our concern that these same things be found in us if we would be counted among her ranks, if we would have a true place among the church. Do you know anything about what Luke is describing here? Do you know what this man knew, this Ethiopian, 
Can you testify along with him that God's word has changed you and that nothing in all the world could prevent you from going on with it? Well, what's to prevent me from going on? I'm part of the church now. Nothing makes me so rejoice as this, he says. Is that your testimony? Do you find along with him? You see, that's the final scene. Philip is, has left, but along he goes and he's rejoicing. Well, do you find that along you go? And at times, almost in spite of yourselves, you find that you're rejoicing. Why are you rejoicing? Well, not because life is going so well. So often it isn't, but simply because of this. Now God has saved me. He's pardoned my sins. He's given me new life. And there's nothing beyond that. There's nothing greater than that. Salvation in Jesus Christ. It's what Newton talked about in his hymn. I was blind, but now I see. How can I contain it? You see... Luke is saying that's what a Christian is. A Christian is an assignment. He's an Ethiopian. And that's the portrait that Luke is painting. The church is composed of Christians. No one else. Is that what you are? Are you a Christian? And how was it at any rate that anyone ever became a Christian? Well, Luke wants to tell us that as well. Very clearly, not by works. Not by a mere form or interest in religion. Reading your Bibles alone will not do. Nor even will professing faith as as Simon Magnus did. It is only as one comes under the power of conviction through the scriptures. A conviction that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that I'm a guilty sinner who is lost until he finds me and saves me and makes me new. That's what a Christian is. And isn't it amazing to see the many ways that he finds us, that Jesus Christ seeks us out and calls us to himself? Well, he might do it like he did in Samaria, or he might do it along the way as he did in the case of the Ethiopian. But the point is, he does it. And when he does it, well, a man will surely be saved and be brought in the church. There isn't anything in all the world that can stop it. And when he does For any man, wherever he is, the response will almost always be exactly the same. It will be this overwhelming sense of getting on with it. Nothing able now to hold us back. What is to prevent me now from going on as a Christian following Jesus, even unto death? This overwhelming new formed conviction in the heart, as well as that of joy. And do you know anything about that? Do you know anything about this joy? Do you know anything about what it is to have this This burden to follow Jesus and to join the ranks of the church. Have have you discovered by a reading and teaching of the scriptures that you are sinners in need of cleansing, in need of forgiveness? Have you discovered who Jesus Christ is? What it means to say that he is the Christ. Not only that he is the Lord, but that he is Savior. And how does he save, save us? He saves us by dying for us. And I ask you again, is that good news to you? Well, it is to guilty sinners who know their sin. If scripture has convinced you of this, and if preaching has convinced you of this, well, then I say, along with Luke, nothing in all the world prevents you from having a solid place among us. Whatever else is true of you, you're a Christian now, for God has made you so. Amen. And let us return our praise to God by standing together and singing hymn 349. And please stand, hymn 349.